Pastor Bell is going to pray. Lord God, we just we just come here together to worship you and praise you and thank you for your goodness and your mercy to each and every one of us and and just for your plan of salvation that that you knew us before the foundations of the earth and and this boggles our mind that you would care that much about us and yet you can see ahead and see that we would be and and uh, you did it all for us and uh, you, you paid a great price and you went through a lot of pain and a lot of heartache for us and we just thank you so much and we say that you are faithful and we'll be faithful to you and we thank you for the chance to worship you and praise you and we thank you Lord, Holy Spirit, that you will be here and work with us. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Lord. All right, before we get into it tonight, a pop quiz for all Bible heads. Um, what's, the, what's the book of salvation? How about the um, about the book of faith? What's which one is the book? That That's okay. Hebrews. How about um, the book of the Holy Spirit? Acts. Yeah. All right. It's a trick question. I mean, there is no the book. And, you know. I can't, you can't, if I say the book of creation, you're going to say, Genesis. except that creation shows up in Psalms, Job, uh, John, and Genesis. And Revelation. And Revelation. So, um, Scripture, as Chuck Messer likes to say, Scripture is composed in a manner which presupposes um, a jamming enemy. I'm paraphrasing. But it's it's written in a way that, that presupposes somebody else is going to try to interfere with the message. So when we teach Scripture, we teach it, um, and when we teach Scripture in seminary, we teach it systematically. We teach systematic theology. You, you learn about pneumatology. You learn about soratology. Uh, you learn about Eddie's ringtone. <laughs> I like the groove. <laughs> but scripture is not built that way. When you want to learn about salvation, you don't. There's not just one book on salvation that if that book was lost, you wouldn't get the message of salvation. It's woven throughout. When there's not the book of Jesus, the whole Bible is about Jesus, and and so. Uh, so it is with every subject in Scripture. So in terms of how we think and how we're used to learning and how we compartmentalize, we will often study Scripture in terms of subject matter. So we'll go to proof texts, and, and most of sermonizing and most of the teaching goes this route where you're addressing a subject or a particular person in, in Scripture and you're, and you're going through that systematically throughout the testimony of Scripture. Nothing wrong with that. But God communicated Scripture in letters and books. And so there is a context, a fabric of the Word of God that if we don't, um, in our Christian life, take chunks at the books, we miss the transmission of our Father at times. So, um, you can go on a subject matter and, and, and just go drill deep on that subject matter, or you can go into a book and touch every aspect of that subject matter that book touches on. You can also go deep on all the subject matters. This particular book, the book of Hebrews, is, is one that I have um, I have wanted to just go through with the church in, for many years, and it just seemed like a good time to start. <laughs> so... Uh, Lord willing, we'll, over the next several weeks, just walk through the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm, um, there's one primary commentary on the book of Hebrews, which uh, to, to me has been a blessing, uh, and even rereading some of it today, 
is Andrew Murray's The Holiest of All. If you haven't read it, um, I suggest you do so. <laughs> and I suggest, it's not one of those things that you sit down and go, wow, I got through half that book today. It's not one of those books. <laughs> it's one of those where you, you, you jump in, you eat a little, and you chew on it for a while. And then you, you eat some. So I'll be sharing some out of this book, Andrew Murray's uh, the, the, uh, the Holiest of All. I thought Helena would appreciate a Dutch minister in his insight and scripture. Okay, uh, the other one is one I read several years ago, which is Everyone's Guide to Hebrews by Neil R. Lightfoot. Okay, and um, Lightfoot. Lightfoot, yeah. Not necessarily. <laughs> no. um, but uh, Max Lucado liked it, and that's why I bought it. No. I, I, it's not, but he did like it. He did like it, not, 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 in, not in a Facebook kind of a way, or in a Twitter kind of a way. It's just kind of like he put his name on top. But um, it's, it's, it's a good treatment. Yeah, everyone's Guide to Hebrews. Um, pulling also from uh, E.W. Bollinger's Companion Bible and from the NIV Study Bible, just different resources. There, you know, there's, there's no, along with, see, we're, we're the community of Christ. So, along with our relationship with the Lord Jesus teaching us His Word, and the Word teaching us about the Lord Jesus, there are all these other men and women of God whom the Lord has inspired that we can learn from. So there's no reason why we should isolate ourselves and go, well, I'm just going to read. You know, you should read it. But then it does help to, you know, read broadly. So, those are some of the insights. I've not cited sources directly. I'm just going to go through it. But I, I uh, intend for this to be just an, a general introduction to the letter uh, to the Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4 out of the King James. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> These four verses are, in essence, the summary of the entire letter. And and taking, where does the sentence end? That's one sentence. Take a deep <laughs> breath, dive, read one sentence, and you're drowning in glory. It, it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I was even thinking today, so, you know, uh, those of you who've known me for a while, some of you don't know, some of you do. So I spent a decade of my, of my Christian discipline um, lost in a, in a dogma of Unitarianism. So I hung out for 10 years of my young life with people who didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. They believed in salvation, they believed he was the Messiah, but they only believed that God the Father was God. Now you can read this and still have that belief is a testament to deception. Because I read this plenty of times. And yet it's plain as day, he holds everything up and he made everything. If that's not divine, then nothing else is. Nothing else qualifies. Okay? So God spoke to us in the past through the prophets, but today He speaks to us through His Son. Through His Son. I don't have a slide for this. I'm just going to say it. And Andrew Murray says it so much better, but I didn't quote him on it. Is... Everything written down in Scripture is to the intent that we may know Christ. The Scripture leads you to Christ. It can't take the place of Him. You can memorize this Word of God. You can be studying it day in, day out. You can do all these things and be unfulfilled spiritually if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. The only purpose of this written Word is to take you to the personal relationship with the living Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. And that is how God is speaking today. 
before prophets would stand, before at the foot of Mount Sinai, the children of Israel said, hey, don't have him talk to us anymore. It's too scary. You go up there in the black cloud, come down, cover your face, and then talk to us, and that will be fine. But please do not have him address us directly. That is exactly what he has accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross. Who lives in your heart? Jesus does. And he speaks there into your spirit to change and alter your life radically, irrevocably, eternally. Amen? Amen. Amen. I mean, I mean, this thing, this thing is so exciting. It, it is, it is to, to me, the revelation in Hebrews, I mean, all revelation is, you know, I, I, I hate to stack one thing on the other, but, but what, what we are shown in Hebrews is majestic. It is breathtaking. It is awe-inspiring. And it is encouraging. <clears throat> so, a quick overview of what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about who wrote it. I mean, it's a letter. You know, usually a letter ends with, Sincerely yours, love always, in him, whatever, in the name. Right? Or, as you read in the church epistles, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the mercy of God, you know, all these things. So who wrote Hebrews? Um, then we're going to look at the character of the book. What's it about? What is this book about? How it's structured? And then, what its central message is. What is the message of the book of Hebrews? Okay? So, who wrote it? There are, in terms of the human agents, there are... Who, who authored it? Who, yeah, yeah, who authored it? Who wrote it? Who authored it? So, in terms of the human agent who wrote it down, there are three primary candidates that have been held for centuries. Uh, in the church. First and foremost is Paul the Apostle. Next is Barnabas. And, and lastly is Apollos. Now there are others that are put forward like Aquila or Priscilla or others, but those, those are fairly novel. Those are recent. Uh, but in terms of the history of the church, these three are the ones that have been presented uh, for the longest period of time. And so I just want to review with you some of the reasons why. So the Pauline authorship, the arguments for Paul the Apostle having written the, the uh, letter of the Hebrews, it's the traditional view. So, um, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't double check here. Let me go, let me go into my authorized version. Paul would be a good guess. Paul would be a good guess. He wrote a lot. He uh, did. Yeah, so, I mean, if if you knew nothing else but, you know, the Bible. Hey, hey, who's this? I'm Jonathan. Jonathan. Blessings, Nicholas. Welcome. Okay. Um, so, you know, if you knew nothing but the Bible that Paul used, the King James Version, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it was good enough for him. This is why all real Bible movies have English accents. Um, it, it says, it says, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. Case closed. Case closed. That's who wrote, wait a minute, that right there is not part of the original text. That's the traditional view. That's just how we publish it. You know, I mean, I'm going to say something. Else for it. Okay. So from, well, you know, let's talk about that. Yeah, not, not to. Not, yeah, good point. Yeah, good question. Um, not to. Uh, where does it get the word Hebrews? To the diaspora. Anyhow, um, does everybody know who the Hebrews are? Yes. Yes. Okay? Commonly called Jews? Yeah, well, so the way these words come about, um, Abraham was a Hebrew. Okay? He, Eber was, you know, one of those progenitors back. That tells you, you know, he, he was from, uh, Eber was from um, uh, Shem. Okay? So from Shem, I know his three sons, uh, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Ham. Ham, thank you. 
so, Shem is where we get the term Semite from. So if you say, now technically we say anti-Semitic when we mean anti-Jewish, but if you're going to be really technical as a word, anti-Semitic means if you're, if you're against Semites. That would include Arabs. Yeah. Okay? Not Persians. <laughs> Iran is Persia. They are not Semites. They're from Japheth. Okay? All right. You're so about American people. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, whoa. No, All right. So that's where semi. The States, that's, that's, that's where semi comes from. You go down. I think it's nine. I can't remember if it's nine generations back from from Abram or nine generations forward from Seth. Either way, you get to Eber, and and he actually, I believe, outlived Abraham. Uh, but that is, if you work out the years and ages and when people died and when people. So that is where Hebrew comes from. So Hebrew is, in essence, the race. And then as you neck that down, you go from, from Abram, then you come all the way down to Jacob, Israel. Okay? So that's where you get Israelite. Jacob's brother was? Esau. Esau, Esau also known as? Edom. An Edomite. Okay, that's where those come from. Um, and, and then, you know, you, well, then you know what the Ishmaelites are, right? So now we're into... Israel, Israelites, so how do you get to a Jew from Israel? Judah. Judah. So then you neck down to Judah and the kingdom of Judah and the southern kingdom where the worship of Yahweh was most retained and then that, that became the name for that group of people, the Jews. Okay? Don't with me? But this is the, this is the book to the Hebrews and it, it did come there because it was addressed to those people. So, Anyhow, from 400 to 1600, the book was commonly called the Epistle of Paul of the Hebrews. It wasn't really debated much until the 1600s, and I'll show you later who it was that debated it, okay? Peter the Apostle to the circumcision, Galatians 2, 7, and 8, says that, Paul says that they, they saw that the apostleship to the uncircumcision, that the Gentiles, was granted to me just as the apostleship to the circumcision was granted to Peter. Peter apostolic mission was to Jews. Paul's apostolic mission was to Gentiles. So if you recall, Paul's manner was he would go in and preach to who first? The synagogues and the Jews. To the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And what would happen every time he preached to Jews? He would get the I mean beat out of him, right? He, you know, it never he had no grace. Paul had no grace with Jews at all. They wanted to kill him. He was, I mean, okay? But he go to Gentiles, everything was great and grand. That's fair. He wanted to kill Christians first. Well, you know. Right. Yeah. There's some, some Talionic thing going on there. Okay. But but Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 3 let's go to 2 Peter 3.15 real quick. Um, try to stick to the program here, but it's good to see 2 Peter 3. In verse 15, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Peter is addressing the diaspora, the Jews scattered abroad. That's the introduction to his first letter, and his second letter is a follow up. So Peter is acknowledging Paul has written to this group of people as well. So this becomes an argument for the potential authorship. Um, of Paul to the book of Hebrews. The theology in Hebrews resonates with the church epistles, and I could have laid that side by side on the table for you, but we're not going to go there. Okay? Just to say nothing in Hebrews contradicts Paul's teaching in the, in the church epistles. But there are problems with this view. Um, first of all, the author doesn't identify himself. Now, it, you know, in... in, in um, I don't even have in, in textual forensics, if you will. People can tell who wrote a letter by the vocabulary they use, uh, the method they write. You can tell who the writer is. It's one of the concerns. As a writer, you're concerned that if you're trying to write dialogue or fiction, that those people sound different than how you talk. But you can't help to bleed through. After all, you are the writer. So I may write, you know, I may write a science fiction story, and I may write a uh, a spy novel and a nonfiction 
but the way I write it and the vocabulary I use, there will be some commonalities in there. So name to me another letter that Paul doesn't identify himself in. Not. Now, every letter he writes, he says, hey, it's me. Boom. Bye, it was me and this guy wrote it. That's not found in Hebrew. I mean, it's not. But if we go back to the, the, the prior point, which was every time he talked to the Hebrews, they wanted to kill him. There's, there's, there's argument as to why he wouldn't want to assemble himself. I Paul Burns. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so this is, this is one of the arguments for Paul's authorship is, is that hey, if he identified himself, it wouldn't have been received. Okay. But see, the literary style of Hebrews is different. The counter argument to this problem is, well, because all his other letters were written to Gentiles, he's now writing to people who know the Old Testament. And so the literary style would be different because he has a different audience. Okay? Ah, oh, but then the vocabulary is different. Really? Yeah. It's, it's a distinctly different set of vocabulary than what we find in the church. Not that there aren't words that are used in both, but the vocabulary set. As a matter of fact, there's a whole list of words used in Hebrews, <coughs> Greek words used in Hebrews, not used anywhere else in the Bible. So, would that be because they were Jewish? <clears throat> it has and to he's do. He's reasoning with them from the Tanakh to. It it, it has I mean, to do with the, the writer. It, is, had, it has to do with the style that Hebrews is written in. It's written in. Um, well, we'll go. Would they we'll there. be using words, Greek words that are taken more from Jewish? From the, that's the thing is, is that if the, the supposition textually, or at least the analysis from those who know better than I do, that if Hebrews had been written in Aramaic or Hebrew first and then translated, it wouldn't look like what we have. Oh. That what we have in the Greek uh, seems to be what was written because of its style and the way it's laid out. Um, so he was writing to... Hebrews who knew Greek? Greek. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind of it was the common language. Yeah. So, like, Matter of fact, um, more Hebrews knew Greek, just like more Jews know English than they know Israeli today. Yeah. Back in that day, more Hebrews knew, more Israelis knew Greek yeah. uh, and Aramaic than they did Hebrew. Yeah, got it. Matter of fact, Hebrew didn't become a language language again until the 20th century. Yeah, until Israel was founded. Yeah. Yeah, it was resurrected for a nation that was born in a day. But, you know. That's fine. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the final problem which I have is, is that Paul's, Paul's grace of the Lord, Paul's commission from the Lord is as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one that said, hey, we st I don't build on another man's foundation. I stick to my metron. I... You know, my sphere of influence God's given me, that's where I plow. I stick to my field, I stick to my lane, that's where I'm at. So, um, so those are just some concerns there. Alright, the next candidate is Joseph, also known as Barnabas. I didn't know his name was Joseph. Yeah, his name was Joseph. So, um, yeah. Barnabas means seven Yeah. Yeah, she's ahead of the game here. So, Tertullian... Y'all familiar with that name, Tertullian? Okay. So Tertullian references in his work that um, the Pudicia or Pudithia, and it, which he wrote around 200, he quotes from an epistle to the Hebrews under the name of Barnabas. So Tertullian ascribes Hebrews to Barnabas having written it. Hold on, really quick. Who's Tertullian? Tertullian is um, considered one of the church fathers. Oh, so he's an early church theologian. Okay. Um, and all these early church theologians, Protestants like to denounce them because the Catholics claim them, and there was no such thing as a Catholic theologian until after the 5th century. So, But, you know, who am I to quibble? Alright, Acts 4.36, since the question came up. Um, and tell you what, Barnabas is a beautiful lesson. Mm. He is a beautiful lesson in so many things. But in Acts 4 and, and verse 36 and Joseph who, was, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite and of the country of Cyprus, 
having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so this is Joseph, a.k.a. Barnabas. The apostles gave him a name. Now, this is a Christian thing. This is not a New Age thing. For, for someone to take on a new name is a Christian thing. Except they don't necessarily take it on themselves. Others grant it. So, you know, Simon comes up to meet Jesus and he says, your name is? Peter. James and John, Jesus says, you guys are the? Thank you. Okay. A promise to you is, is that if you overcome, you'll get a what? A new name. A new name. An intimate name that you and Jesus share. Just like a husband and wife have pet names for each other that no one else uses, <laughs> Jesus is going to have a name for you that He calls you by. And when you hear it, trust me, you'll know it. Okay? Alright. Anyhow, the apostles... Um, so he was a Levite. I'm just So Yeah. Alright, so he's a Levite. Barnabas is a Levite. So if you've read the book of Hebrews, I mean, what is it filled with? The tabernacle, the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings, the priestly functions, yeah. and how Jesus is the high, the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Barnabas would be intimately uh, knowledgeable and aware. There's room in here, Eddie. Yeah. I just want to sneak in. No one pay attention to me. <laughs> no one sneaks in that time. Preach. Let's go. Okay. So. Um, so, he was a Levite, as you see, he would have been familiar with temple functions. Hebrews is a letter of exhortation. Joseph was nicknamed by the apostles Barnabas, and Barnabas means son of exhortation. Now, Bar is son. A little Hebrew lesson here in this book of Hebrews. Navas. What does Navas mean in Hebrew? See, by interpretation, writing it in the Greek, they give the proper interpretation so we understand. It means son of exhortation. Navas is exhortation. You know what Navas is? Prophet. A prophet. See, prophecy, prophecy intrinsically, primarily, basically, and always is encouragement to draw near to God. It's not hellfire, brimstone, burn the ground down, rip your flesh apart, expose your sin to the world, and throw you down and stab you. That happens if you don't listen. However, it's, it's a prophet is by nature always first, foremost, encourager, exhorter. Why should this surprise us? The gift of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that we can all enjoy in. Tongues, interpretation, prophecy, all these nine. Prophecy for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Right. Amen? Yeah. That's what it's for. It's not for some person to stand in front of the mic and I have a word for the church. Uh, someone's here and I think a uh, a dark time is coming, but uh, if you repent, you know, have you ever been there? You know, yeah. I, I think the church needs to prepare because I just I had a vision from the Lord and there was a car wreck and uh, all this doom and gloom and. Okay, I'm not saying that words of knowledge can't come that warn us of things of that nature, but prophecy is primarily that of. This is my beloved son, and we'll have well pleased. God has poured His love out on you. If you would hear what the Holy Spirit cries from your heart, the first thing you'll hear is you launching towards your Father, Abba. It's not a word of rejection, it's not a word of shame, it's not a word of anything but complete and total acceptance of a child by his Father. That's what the Holy Spirit says continually in you. Many times, I, I've watched Dale do this, but he's when he leads people to finally hear from the Holy Spirit, the testimony, a lot of times, is the first thing they hear is Jesus say, I love you. And people just fall apart because they never believed it before. To hear that word from the Lord. So his 
his, and I'll show you how Hebrews uh, is, is a letter of exhortation here in a bit. Final candidate is Apollos. So why Apollos? Now there's some strong reasons why Apollos. Um, this was first proposed, at least documented, by Martin Luther. That's why, you know, that first frame was 400 to 1600. So during the Reformation, they began to question this tradition of Paul having been the, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews. So first suggested by Martin Luther. So the language, some of the reasons why Apollos, the language is rhetorical and highly literary. It's written as oratory, meant to be heard. It is crafted in the, in, the, in the best style of Greek oratory. It's composed in that language. So many of the commentators say this is lost on us in the translations because we can't feel it, but it is, it's, you know, every style of writing, like if you're writing a paper, a school paper, you've got you to follow a particular style. If you're doing uh, a certain other type of thesis, you've got to follow that style. You're, you're preparing a court document. There's a particular style you have to follow. This is written in Greek oratory style of presentation or argumentation. You're probably getting a little hint of that with the long... With that long first sentence, yeah. That's like, a, yeah. bam! Okay, so... Um, it quotes from, from the Septuagint and conceptual constructs. It quotes from the Septuagint and, con and, con and conceptual constructs connects it to Alexandria. The, the Septuagint, which is often referred to in scholarly articles as the LXX, you know, the 70, it was 70 scribes in Alexandria of Egypt that translated the Old Testament into Greek. So many of the quotations that you'll read in... Um, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, do draw from the Septuagint translation, because that was, you know, the lingua franca. I just said that in Spanish about the language French in English. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, here's the thing. Matthew, you could take Matthew and look at Matthew, you could see that it is a Hebraic concept translated into Greek terms. You can, you can make a backward engineering argument for its construction in Aramaic. And, and more than likely, see, we're Americans, we just think in, certain, in terms of, you know, one language. But more than likely, Matthew was written in Matthew's language, which is Aramaic, and then probably also written in Greek and in Latin, so that it could get across to people who had, you know, um, it's the old joke. You all heard the old joke, right? What, what, do, you, what do you call a person who knows three languages? Trilingual. Trilingual. And someone who knows two languages? Trilingual. And someone who knows one language? American. American. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> so, so look, the Septuagint was done in Alexandria. Um, the way it's constructed, it's rhetorical style. Um, it, it is evocative of Alexandrian scholarship. And Apollos was from Alexandria. And he, in Acts 18.24, was was referred to as being mighty in, in, in scriptures, mighty in the word, instructed in the way of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. So Aquila and Priscilla, who had been taught by Paul, took, the, took him under, the, under their wing and, and taught him some more, and then we see through Paul's letters that there is an association, a close association between Paul and Apollos. They weren't rivals, and they encouraged each other in ministry, so he's very familiar with Paul's teaching. Okay, So these are the three primary candidates um, for their authorship, but frankly, um, Eusebius, who was one of the early church historians, quoted Clement, who was one of the church fathers, as saying, only God knows who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and Clement was much closer to its original penning uh, than we are. So we don't know who the human agent was, but we do know certain things about this human agent. We know that the author was a convert and not a witness of Jesus' ministry on earth. We know this from Hebrews 2.3. This is self-testimony. He, he would in some ways and he wouldn't in others because Jesus came to him personally and Jesus revealed to him the gospel. It was by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he, he got it directly from uh, the Master's mouth in that sense. Uh, Hebrews 2 and verse 3 how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Okay? 
So he's not saying, hey, I heard Jesus preach this by the Jordan River. He's saying, I heard this from those who heard it from Jesus. Okay? So we know that. Uh, we know by the nature of the letter that the author is Jewish. And we know that the author, by the contents of the letter, is very familiar with the temple and the priestly functions. And he's well versed in the Old Testament. The, all the different um, sections of Scripture. Now, another person that, that a synopsis or a method, if you want a, a, like almost a parallel of how this instruction style goes, read Acts 7, where Stephen, a Jew from Alexandria, is preaching and goes through the Old Testament to people, Jewish people, who know the Old Testament. And the method of instruction and rhetoric is very similar. Very similar. In any event, uh, this author is well versed in the Old Testament. And it's a letter to the, sent to those who knew the author. And, and you can see that in the closing of the book, you know, that I'd be restored unto you. He's very familiar with their leaders, who they were and who they are. And he's very encouraging to that whole situation. Regardless of human agent, as Eddie said, God is the author. God's the ultimate author of this book. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. One of the first, one of the first attacks on your faith will always be, did God really say? Did God really say? Um... And then if that doesn't get you, he'll twist it and say, well, because it's written. So first he'll try to get you to doubt what God said, and then he'll try to twist the meaning of what God said. But th that's the crux of faith. It's always a walk of faith. We have Christ in us and the Holy Spirit to give witness. But this sure word of prophecy, this written word, that it, it's a matter of faith. Do you believe that God revealed this through human agency? I mean, I'm, I shared this last week. I'm reading this book. A commentary on Genesis, quote-unquote, by a guy who's supposed to be a theologian who I see no evidence of faith in divine revelation in Scripture. How does that equate? It doesn't. It doesn't. So we, we have to take it on faith that God revealed this. How does He do it? He does it through the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So, the character of Hebrews. It is a letter of exhortation. Look at... Uh, Chapter 13, and verse 22. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. I call this internal witness that Hebrews is not too grand to assimilate. <laughs> the author himself says, really, it's not that long of a letter. You can get this. You, you can grab a hold of this and get it. Okay? So, please, grab a hold of this and get it. <laughs> but it's, it is a letter of exhortation. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I've written you only a short letter. That's the NIV. Okay? So, like, Jude and James. Right, yeah, those are really short. It's like a post That's like an email. <laughs> I texted you over there. Love yeah, you. love you. Yeah, <laughs> Jude's like a text, and, and Philemon's an email. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who was it that traveled when... Third John's a tweet, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Second John. Almost. Almost, yeah. Third John's a tweet. Barnabas took Mark. Okay, and so Barnabas kind of falls off. Once, once Barnabas and Paul split, Barnabas falls off the map in Scripture, except for one reference, I think, in Corinthians. You know, if, if you see Barnabas, tell him, hey, everything's good, something like that. But, so this word exhortation is uh, the word paraklesis in the Greek, and it means to urge one to pursue some course of action, encouragement and admonition for the purpose of strengthening and establishing the believer in the faith. This is a letter that is intended to encourage you to take this course of action, to be strengthened in your faith. It is a book of warnings. Uh, there are, uh, Hebrews contains some of the most sobering words to the saint that, that you'll ever read. 
I mean, you you can read the church epistles all day, and and I mean, you could sign on and and rubber stamp and and wrap around and gold seal once saved, always saved, until you get to Hebrews 10, and try to argue way around that not being about believers. Got to find your way around the warnings in Hebrews of what the believer faces if they don't stay faithful. You can't. It's very sobering. It's a book of warnings, and it is also. A book of better things. Of better things. And in this sense, Hebrews is, if meaning no disrespect, because I believe that they are genuine. But if you have met Messianic Christians um, who are endeavoring to be Jewish, Hebrews is the answer for all of that. Because it is a book of better things. So, as a letter of exhortation. It's an exhortation against drifting from God's Word. We see that in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. It's an exhortation against disbelieving God's Word. We see that in Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 16. It's an exhortation against dullness to God's Word. We see that in Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 20. And it's an exhortation to draw near to God. And that's Hebrews 10, 19 through 13, 25. Um, disbelieving is, that's not true. Dullness is like, yeah, I know that's the word. You know, but you're not. You know, another word we use for that is mental ascent. You know, you start to get hard-hearted toward it. Hebrews. Hebrews. More Hebrews. Kind of like Luke 10, 25 for St. John. Yes, yeah. The assembly of the saints together. Bad area. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of drawing near to God, is drawing near to each other. I, I tried that for a while. I, it was gonna, just going to be me and God. I got hurt. And so just me and my family, we're going to worship God on our own in that. And I gradually grew away from God. You know, you need to, you need to be with that. Those coals, you know, yeah, God places the lonely in families for a reason. <laughs> of the 305 verses in Hebrews, 172 are exhortation verses. Okay, so that's, you know, 56.39%. Okay, so... There you go. <laughs> All right. It's a book of warnings. Hebrews is a book of warnings. It's a warning not to neglect so great a salvation. It's a warning not to come short of the promised rest through hard-heartedness. It's a warning against the danger of sloth, standing still, and falling away. And it's a warning against sinning willfully and drawing back to perdition. And it's a warning against falling short of the grace of God and refusing Him who speaks. It's one of the stiffest warnings in, in, in Hebrews, is in Hebrews 12, is if you think it was bad to foot of Mount Sinai, when they didn't hear the guy who was standing on earth, how do you think we're going to fare when we don't listen to the guy who's speaking from heaven? And that's what you need to understand. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He abides in you, but He speaks from heaven. So the place of authority and position He's speaking them from today has much more umpa to it, much more gravitas, and is um, neglected at much greater risk. But Hebrews, of all, is a book of better things, of better things. It presents Jesus as better than the angels. It presents a better hope. A better hope. The children of Israel lived in the hope of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So what is the prerequisite to a resurrection? Being dead. Being dead. The Christian hope doesn't include death. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You see, Christians live in the hope that Christ can come back while we're alive. All time clock setting, and is this the end days, and Christ is coming back next September, and all that out the window. Yesterday, today, and I mean, at any moment, as long as I'm breathing, Christ can come back. 
And if I die and my children are breathing, Christ can come back. I mean, it's a living hope. It's not one that I have to rest in death and hope. It's a living hope. It's a better hope. Amen? We're going forward to it. Uh-huh. It's a better testament or a better covenant. So, again, trying to return to the old covenant. See, our Messianic brethren get incensed that we, we, we disparage God by not following the old covenant. Well, you, you're saying the old covenant doesn't exist, it doesn't work. No, we're just saying that we live under a better covenant. See, I, I live under the continual conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment by the living presence of the Holy Spirit within me. Versus, do not, do not, do not, do not. It's different. It's written on the tablets of my heart versus on the cold tables of stone. It's living. It's really fun when you, you get together with an, an older man and you take him out to see cars that were young when they were young. Uh -huh. And they, they really like looking you know, at I, them. I resent this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they still drive a new car, don't they? They sure do. They love looking at them and walking around hey. and seeing how they're restored, but then they walk away and they get in their new, new car. <laughs> It's a better testament. It's a better covenant. It's a good point. You're not wrong. It points out better promises. It shows Jesus as having been the better sacrifice. It tells us that we have better possessions. Israel had the land. We have greater possessions in heaven, in our inheritance in the new earth. Join heirs. It exposes the better country. Hebrews shows us that we are in heavenly Zion. That we are seated in the court of God. In His house. <laughs> a better, better resurrection. I've got to read this to you. Hebrews 11. So, you know, better is a Greek word that essentially means better. Yeah. So it's it's the uh, yeah. it's the comparative to the word for good, agathos. Agathos is good. Right? So there's good and there's better. And better is the word superior, better, stronger. Okay? I can't keep thinking of the six million dollar man who can make him better, stronger, faster than he was before. Um, you know. And then every time he moves it was slow motion. I'm, I'm dating myself, right? You, you remember Steve, right? <laughs> that was good timing. <laughs> I'm dating myself. You remember Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I had to throw myself a line there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Hebrews 11. So after finishing this whole thing of, of, of faith, verse 33 all these Old Testament saints who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So... Look, all resurrections aren't created equal. 1 Corinthians 15 is the same message. All resurrections aren't created equal. We're all going to be like Christ. It's just how much like Christ are you going to be? Are you going to be the gardener fresh out of the tomb? Are you going to be the walking through walls Jesus? Are you going to be the, the shape-changing Jesus? The disappearing Jesus? Are you going to be the Jesus that makes people fall down like dead men? Together. <laughs> <laughs> Which glory of Jesus are you going to reflect is directly proportional to the glory of Jesus you allow in your life now. Wow. Okay? So, so this better resurrection is in reference to the placement in the resurrection of the just. Now, Jesus gave pictures of the resurrection of the just. And the resurrection of the just has reference to the Old Testament saints. Okay? So these people essentially underwent martyrdom and for their martyrdom will receive a better resurrection. Verse 36. 
Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bond bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were they were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. I thought this was encouraging. It is. <laughs> Being destitute and afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us. These people died in martyrdom to receive a better resurrection, and yet we, who came in the door through faith by grace, get an even better thing. Hmm. An even better, better resurrection. Are you with me? I mean, that's just like, ah, stupid! <laughs> I mean, what I, just my entry point, what I got through grace and faith in Jesus Christ for His accomplished work on the cross, trumps the resurrection of the just. Mm. Church, it's good news, right? Yeah. Amen. Huh? Amen. Okay. A better than better than a better resurrection. We're joining us with Christ. Amen. Everything he's got, we got part of. There you go. Better blood and testimony. You see, in the Old Testament, we have Abel. And Abel's cry is further specified in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord? Faithful and true, for you avenge our blood on our enemies. Abel's blood cried from the ground. But Jesus' blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. He has a better testimony. The blood of Christ speaks life. Amen? So it's a book of better things. So what is the structure of Hebrews? It's very complex. I want you to just shake it off a little bit. I know we've been through a lot. All right, you ready? The first part of Hebrews is doctrine. <laughs> okay? So that's Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 through 10.18. The second part of Hebrews is practical. 10.19 through 13.25. What is... How to live. That's the structure of Hebrews. Cool. Okay? That's hard. Right? I told you. What's your short letter? Okay? So what is what is the message of Hebrews? The message of Hebrews is the primacy of Jesus, the Son of God, in all things. We saw that in the introduction. The message of Hebrews is, is that everything that came before was only for the purpose of Jesus, who is everything. All things. To and for you. Amen? This is uh, the holiest of all, from the holiest of all by, by author Murray. He says, The cure the epistle has for all our failures and feebleness, the one preservative from all danger and disease, is the knowledge of the higher truth concerning Jesus, the knowledge of Him in His heavenly priesthood. See, if I think of Jesus in His earthly ministry, and I know, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but if I think of Jesus in His earthly ministry, I may, I may account Him as perhaps getting tired in the boat and falling asleep. I may see Him as the one who says, Get thee behind me, Satan. But in Hebrews, Jesus is the one who intercedes for me in the power of an endless life. The high priest of God who has prayed for me before I was ever born and who will always, 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 always see to my cause. See to my cause who will be there to help in time of need, who is the judge who sits on the mercy seat. He is the Lord in heaven, the one who holds up the entire universe by the power of His Word. Okay, if His Word is powerful enough to make galaxies fly right, and He gives you a rhema, you think maybe... That limb can be healed, those eyes can see, that job can be won, that problem can be resolved, that mountain climbed. 
He's holding the entire universe together by the power of His Word. And He is the one who speaks to you in your heart. He says, our one need, our one need is to know Jesus better. Amen to that. Not Bible verses, not rhetoric, not theology, Jesus. To know Jesus and to know Him better. Amen? <laughs> Hebrews 1.1 1, 1, through 3, this out of the Amplified. In many separate revelations, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in different ways, God spoke of old to our forefathers in and by the prophets. But in the last of these days, He has spoken to us in the person of a Son whom He appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom He created the worlds and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made, produced, built, operated, and arranged them in order. You think anything you go through surprises Jesus? Oh, God. Anything, any success, any failure, any fear, any love, any good work, any sin, you think any of it surprises Him? No. No. What, what's the point in saying that? What's the point in me saying that? What I just said or this? No, what you just said. What I just said yeah. is because He arranged all time. I'm not talking fate. He arranged all time, set everything in order. He can do that. The actions of one individual person, not too hard to imagine, not too hard to see forward on, not too hard to see. That's so it's, it's just an encouragement by scales of power. Again, not fate, but knowledge. See, he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. The, the concept of where we fit into our family, into space and time and everything else. I wasn't born in the Middle Ages. I wasn't born to a Hispanic couple. No. no you know, on and on. It's like my place and time is mine. And, yes. And yeah. It's, it's part of my identity. It's part of your identity. You, there's, there's no... Um, I do not believe in any accidental emergence of a human being. And so the time that we come forward is the time ordained by God. Who knows that you were not born for such a time as this. So we all have opportunity in the day of our being to join God's redemptive plan. That's your destiny. So again, it's not fate, but He knows. He has arranged it. He has set it. He holds it up by the power of His Word. He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying, or radiance of the divine. <laughs> he is the perfect imprint and the very image of God's nature, upholding and maintaining and guiding and propelling the universe by His mighty word of power. When He had, by offering Himself, accomplished accomplished our cleansing of sin. Accomplished. We're not looking for absolution. It's accomplished. <laughs> what we are doing is reaching it by faith. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had a phone call this morning. Um, a, a mentor of mine, dear friend, he's in his 70s. And when I was a a snot-nosed teenager, he had me like this, you know, he was just walking me through. Um, uh, you know, taught me how to lead, taught me how to work. And I had, I had uh, written an article last night, and, and anyhow, he read it, and he just called to encourage me. Where was I going with this? And, and so, we were talking about just being washed in the blood, a life of repentance. He says, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm 70 stinking years old, you think some of these things I'd get over. He said, but I live a life of repentance. Not guilt, mm -hmm. but repentance mm -hmm. of recognition of my sin and accepting the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. Not willful sin and not hard-heartedness, but of repentance of recognizing where I'm weak and being washed by the blood of Christ. We are not sufficient of ourselves. You took us the way we are. Amen. We are sufficient in Christ Jesus who is transforming us into His image. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. 
He accomplished, He Himself accomplished the cleansing of our sin. And riddance of guilt, He sat down. Sitting in Scripture is indicative of completeness. God rested from all His works. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Amen? So, I trust, Lord willing, we can walk through this letter together.